You are listening to iRadio TT online all the time. Welcome to Music Matters, the Caribbean edition. The podcast series featuring news, interviews and analysis of all the music from the islands. accepting our um, idea for a panel because on this conversation about investment, um, we were looking at ways to invest and how best to invest. And we've seen that the live music industry is one of those areas where artists actually make money. One, two, it's an area where you can actually collate numbers and it makes more money than streaming. So we wanted to talk about the best ways in which to get investment into festivals because we've also done research and the person who's done all the research is our guest there, Dr. Joanne Tull, on festivals, that music festivals are the reason for a lot of our music. A lot of soca music came out of a festival called Carnival, Calypso, Booyah music in, in other islands and that kind of stuff. And as a consequence, we wanted to figure out how best we can find a kind of toolkit, if you want, mm-hmm. to make sense of how best to convince the private sector, the public sector, to put money into investing in festivals, whether it's a, a jazz festival, a music festival, or the whole festival that is called Carnival that provides a kind of impetus to create soca music as we know it and things. So I turn to my esteemed colleague here, <laughs> Laura Dorich Phillips, the number one creative and um, industry journalist in Trinidad to start the panel. <laughs> it works every single time. So as it is. So let's go. Yes, so as Nigel said, you know, the region, we have tons of festivals. And even with food, non-music festivals, there is music involved in yes. food festivals. All the festivals we have in the region in 2018 or 2019, I believe the Caribbean Tourism Organization dubbed it the, the Caribbean, that year, the year of festivals, because there are so many festivals throughout the region. Um, so, Dr. Tull, we, we're talking about festivals and the role it plays in developing the music industry. Yes. Could you give us some insight into how it... Because re- I think for a lot of people, they see it as, okay, it's just an event you attend. But what role does it really help to play in developing our music industry and our artists? Okay. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Laura, Nigel, for having me. I'm always happy to be here at this particular conference. And it really has a lot to do with what we're discussing. Um, music, as many of us would know, was really the first CCI in the region, first creative cultural industry. I don't know how many of us even contemplate that because that's quite important. And it's interesting to note that CARICOM is 50 years yesterday. And do you know that your music industry in the Caribbean is 50 years as well? And when one thinks about that, it it means that it isn't only what the festival does for music, but what the music industry does. For festivals. And um, if it were not for the evolution of music into an industry, I dare say that the carnival ecosystem as we know it would be quite pragmatic, fragmented, sorry, 
it would not necessarily be as sustainable as it is. And I know my colleague, um, Sobers Esprit, will certainly speak to Dominica. It's very much the case there for the World Creole Music Festival. If you take out music, well, what are we going there for? I mean, we love, I love Dominican food, but it's the music. And so before we could talk about what festivals mean for music, it might be useful, you know, just to mention that that music um, as performance and showcase and art form as a productive force really gives a representation of how we have evolved in terms of creative and cultural industries. It has led the way because, of course, music also syncs with some of the other performing arts and, fest and fashion and, and what have you. And for me, it particularly are perhaps about three areas. It would have shown us how to generate income. It would have been the thing to force us to contemplate things like intellectual property, um, the value of copyright, even in the context of a festival ecosystem. Uh, we have seen data such, such as that. It certainly pointed us in the direction of understanding um, the visiting migratory patterns of, of our neighbors because if the music is sounding good in Barbados, bet your bottom dollar Chinese going up over. And you see that right across the Caribbean. And then thirdly, certainly in terms of technology, where we heard our colleague mention that in the panel prior to the one on Afrobeat, but he also did speak about it, that music has predominantly in terms of how we can build productive capacities. And you see, um, even at the national level here, where that has been an important training platform. For example, NTA um, being very forefrontish with um, training in terms of, of production. Those of us in here who are producers, I kind of see a few who I think are producers. And, and you, as you would know, most of you don't like to only create music for carnival. I think they abhor that, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, but the fact is your capacities have expanded beyond that. So there is that. And I think collectively inside of there is the person. You know, the human capacity that we have built through the music industry is incredible. And if we use Soka, and I could make my personal example of, of Marshall Montano and, and family. Um, it is through the way in which they operated their business. You saw a lot of things change in the carnival industry. And so I think those are some important pillars that we could lay there. And then so I suppose then we could look at how then festivals then have in turn impacted. Oh, me now? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, one of the things, as I said, when I was introducing is that you are the the leader in terms of festival research, festival economic research, right? And um, as I said, festivals can collate a grand number of persons and it could affect a person's career as it was, right? Yeah. Um, but the, the critical thing that had been spoken about forever and ever and ever in every strategic report was the idea of data. Yes. And that critical is one of the things that you have done in terms of being able to yeah. compile data and publish this thing about, about festivals. But the bigger question I wanted to ask was, how difficult is it to capture data? Because either, either artists are unwilling to give data mm -hmm. or people are not willing to do the work. But how hard is it really to do that data capture? Well, I, I will start with something that myself and colleagues who are into data collection, particularly for the festival economy, like to say. Data is currency. It's like money. How hard is it for you to attain money? 
<laughs> right. Silence. That's the first place I'll start. Data collection requires a willingness of all, and that willingness isn't just about recognizing that this is an important exercise, but that you are willing to give of self in terms of, of giving your information to the data process. That's two. It's also about, at the policy level, a recognition that this is important to the extent that it's mandated and that it filters into your um, statistical records. Um, I don't know how many people know this. Um, one of the reasons why we don't really have festivals collected on a consistent way at the national or even CARICOM level is that your ministers have to request that. Yes, it has to be requested. For data to be collected on an industry, it has to be requested. It has to be seen as important at the various cabinet levels. And even if CARICOM, for example, says that this is important, because as you know, um, we are in, we in the region are supposed to be following a creative and cultural industry strategy of sorts towards strengthening our human capacity building as well as empowering youth. This is something that had been determined a few years ago, that is still an issue um, in terms of being a strategy that we follow. But, of course, I think many of us know that data, I like to say measuring is knowing. The data is important for informing what we are doing as a strategy, why we are doing it, and how we, how we are progressing, really, is the way which you kind of test it. And might I say that data isn't just um, quantitative. It's also qualitative, and therein lies another problem. We only think about the numbers and dollars and cents, but the truth is when you look at the Caribbean and you do test it well, you do see the qualitative data showing where our strengths lie. So that it really should be a, a combination um, in terms of helping us to propel that, that strategy. So there is that. Um, the other challenges, of course, have to do with technical know-how. Um, data collection, everybody don't like it. There are a few of us who collect. I, I like it. I find it's fun, but everybody don't. You know, I nerdy. Everybody don't like that. <laughs> and, and, and it's also that some people do find it onerous. I, Nigel, how did you enjoy your data collection for your course? Right? You see, yeah, I shake right. his head and he knows it's important. Um, so that really leads to the other thing that is time. You have to have the resource of time. And you have to have the resource of money. So this currency that we want to capture also requires currency to be able to capture it. And so this is where sometimes governments are challenged because it's not something, remember we're going back to the point before about a cabinet seeing it as important. Notice I said a cabinet. I did not put any national distinction in front of the word cabinet. And so therefore, you have a case where this year it might be important. Next year, it may not be. The year after. And this is how we go. The year after is important. And so we end up with data gaps as well. So we could, we, you can't compare 2020 to, or let's say 2019, because of course we had a pandemic, to now. But that is what happens. So, so that there's no data about festivals in the Caribbean, or there is data? There is data. data. So there are two things I want to say where that is concerned. There is data. Um, and as a matter of fact, we have a lot of secondary data that we take for granted. I remember years ago when I was Dr. Nurse's research assistant, there was this fascinating thing that we would do going to CSO and you would say, um, 
what data do you have on Carnival? And they will say they don't have any. So then I will say, okay, so can I see the export-import data for steel pan? Oh, we have that. Can I see, um, well, back in those days, oh, Lord, I just was in my age. Back in those days, <laughs> you were still um, pulling some carriers. You know, you, you could have tracked blank CDs, recorded CDs, that tape. You, you could have still done that dench. Don't question it. <laughs> but they never clue in that that's important to the carnival as it is important to the music industry. Okay, um, how many audiovisual companies do we have in Trinidad and Tobago? Well, that is data for carnival. So who make any music videos? <laughs> so, so the, so the thing is secondary data exists that we don't use. So there is that. But you also have the capacity to count primary data. And this is where we expose our students at UWI too. Um, we, we go in a party and we, we get a lot of data. So a lot of intel you can get by just standing up by a door, standing outside a vet even, you know. And um, we, we don't understand these things because, as for some of you who may know my work, we are not very clear on the notion of a carnival ecosystem or a festival ecosystem. You see, because these things are not operating in a vacuum. So if you're able to map that out, you can see what are the various elements that you can actually measure that really are low-hanging fruit. You know, wouldn't you want to know how many vendors are, are part outside your event that you can go and demonstrate to an investor that your event, your festival event, is actually making a difference to a small community, an aspect of, of your ecosystem, you see? And how many um, persons would you have hired and at what level of revenue would have flow, flowed through that in terms of your support system? The scaffolding man. The scalper man too, you know. You see, because all of this is part of your ecosystem. Um, and, and those examples that I've just called there, if you notice, would be a combination of data that existed already for these people doing business all the time. And then primary data as a new data because you are, of course, now collecting it now specific to your particular interest. So it exists. But, you know, in the absence of knowing that ecosystem, sometimes we feel it's not there. Yeah, I remember um, there was a, a woman from New Orleans, Madiga, talking yes. about going to the supermarkets yes. during that period to find out how much more food was sold. Yes. So they would get an idea of how many people yes. came to New Orleans from yes. Madiga. And you can also do future scanning. Funny, she said the supermarket. And my mind went immediately to Jamaica and Jamaica's camera. I don't know why Rhea nephew stuck out in my head. But I do remember going to the carnival one year, and just looking at the shelves, and I remember saying to one of my friends, I said, white rum going to become a big deal in the Caribbean for carnivals. Next thing you know. <laughs> so data allows you to future scan. Because you, because you really are, with regard to the cultural industries and music, especially, it's really about human behavior. If you, if you want to understand how a sect in creative industries is doing, you just have to track human behavior. And, and, and to be honest, this is what the corporate entities do. So that if we as stakeholders within our respective realms of the music industry and, and the auxiliary sectors understand that, we are better able to communicate with them because that's really what they're looking for. 
They're trying to understand how you are making a difference. I'll give an example that is very current. Um, and before I give the example, I'll preface it to say that, as I like to say, but there's good news. <laughs> because young people are increasingly beginning to understand these things. And they really are the future of our sectors. Right. So that event that happened last weekend there, Island Crashes, is my understanding that they've done an economic impact assessment. Mm. And one of the major sponsors, of course, Trinidad and Tobago, I won't call their name, but they're big, a soft drink. I'll stop there. That's how they woo them. They could tell you how much difference they made to Tobago on that weekend. I, I was blown by that in terms of the demographics. And and here's this fascinating thing. I don't know how many of us you you know this that the parents going to because you know is the young so the parents renting all these villas. Man, Tobago had a ball last weekend. Where's John? John quiet, you know. John know this, you know. So parents are renting all these villas while these young people frolic away. So that's dual income that would have incurred there. Going to the supermarket, the flights, the parties. It, they were able to convince the corporate sponsor that we are making a difference in Tobago and you need to be a part of this. And I understand the data also tracked through the years how they would have invested in the talent. So you see, we come back by music, the performing artists, the DJs, and those that are associated with the music industry, sound, stage, lighting, and so on. I want to bring in um, my, my colleague from Dominica. Subas Espri, are you there? Yes. Subas, yeah. you're there. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Wonderful. Yes. Interesting, interesting conversation so far. So far, so good. Yes. Well, just to yes. preface this thing, Subas was a, was a founding member of the Dominica Festivals Commission, and they created the World Creole Music Festival, which is one of the biggest festivals in the Caribbean, as well as... it. it um, helped develop the jazz and Creole festival out there. Um, so, as, as a member of this, of this festival committee, I'm just trying to understand the kind of wider Caribbean experience. Mm. How hard, how easy, how difficult was it in terms of the kind of rationale that you had to use to get investors to come on board what was effectively a genre festival and now is, as I said, one of the largest festivals in the Caribbean. How did you see that development? And could you just guide us through that in a Short, yeah. Okay, first of all, let me just begin by saying thank you to Music City for allowing me this opportunity to share my own experience with the, the rest of the, the colleagues here. Um, so, yeah, in, in, it, it began way back in 1995, 1996. I joined the Tourist Board at that time, just fresh out of university. And, um, but, but my background, I've always had a strong background in the arts and culture. And so, here it was, a young professional coming out of university, joining the tourism team, and engaging in conversations about how we're going to strengthen our tourism industry. And the, the idea then was, hey, great as ecotourism was, great as adventure was, we needed to, to, to create an event. We needed to create some excitement around the music in particular of Dominica to drive increased visitation to the island, to increase revenue, and to impact the livelihoods of those involved in the tourism industry in particular. So the, the, the first imperative was really about tourism, because that is where this whole thing was situated. But also, but we had a secondary agenda in that a lot of us 
involved in this in this exercise, then we couldn't from the arts. So people like Gordon Henderson, like Dennis Joseph, and those names I call I'm, I'm calling were music professionals of of decades, decades long playing music, touring the Caribbean, touring the world in some instances. They created a genre called Kadas Lipso in the 1970s. In fact, Joanne talked about we celebrating 50 years of CARICOM and 50 years of music. Dominica, this month, we celebrating 50 years of Kadas Lipso music. Mm -hmm. It was in 1973 that a young guy then called Gordon Henderson brought together a group of Dominican musicians to create a genre called Kadas Lipso, which was really a fusion of Calypso, of Haitian rampa music. Mm -hmm of funk from the United States and put it together. And what we saw was three decades of success in the French West Indies, in France, in um, certain parts of Africa, particularly the Portuguese and French-speaking part of Africa. So in 1997, we say, 1995, we say, hey, we're going to create this festival. Mm -hmm. the, the thing was, we didn't know where the resources were coming from because at that time, no government wanted to invest the kind of money that was needed to drive a festival of that nature. Luckily, the government changed in 1995. And the people at the helm, a couple of the people at the helm of the festival decide, we're going, this is going to be a priority. We're going to make a festival a priority for Dominica. So we started talking about a, a Kadassu festival, that is a festival around Dominican music. But we said, no, that would be too narrow. And we began to convince, have conversations about a broader festival that will incorporate Elements of not just Dominican music, but Creole music. Because Martinique and Guadeloupe, you're talking about almost a million people. Mm -hmm. St. Lucia, a quarter million people. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the markets in, 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 in Dominican diaspora, in France, and so on. We went to the government, so we came up with this idea of a world Creole music festival located in Dominica, but we're bringing the Creole world together. We went to the government. The first, our, our initial discussion was a budget of 400,000 East dollars. In 1996, friends, that was a huge amount of money for any government to invest in any single activity. It became a major talking point in the parliament of Dominica. Guys say, are you crazy? How you can take $100,000 to do a fetch? <laughs> That was the kinds of conversations we're having. Mm -hmm. the, when we, the government approved the festival budget, approved the, the establishment of a, of, a, of a festival commission, but we never got the $400,000. Mm -hmm. We didn't get the $400,000 that first year. However, the festival was a resounding success in 1997. And, and, and it was a resounding success for a number of reasons. One was that the Dominicans just fell in love with a concept of using the music, using the culture, mm -hmm. I mean, bringing our people of Creole um, world, of the Creole world together. Mm -hmm. Bringing bands like Kassav, well, Kassav didn't play first year, but um, Sabu Kombo and some of these big bands from Haiti. And, 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 and their, 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 their thing, it was easy to tell, particularly the, the local private sector. And, and we talk about some of those private sector. There, there was strong connection with some, some elements of the private sector. We didn't have to convince the beer companies, the telecom companies, the shipping lines, local transportation. They knew instantly 
that an association with the World Caribbean Festival would mm-hmm. pay dividends to them mm-hmm. and to drive sales, to increase the awareness, to improve the brand. Mm-hmm. And so after 26 years, we see many of the same companies are still with the festival, providing large sums of money or, or in-kind contribution, in-kind support mm-hmm. to, to, to help in, in sustaining and maintaining this festival to the standard area is going to. And the government that initially was kind of ambivalent about putting $400,000 mm-hmm. has invested now, is, or is investing now, millions of dollars into this World Premier Festival. Mm-hmm. So as, um, just very quickly, because we have to wrap up soon, what role has um, Dominica, for those who have not been to the Dominica World Trail Festival, you really should make it mm-hmm. a must-do. It is the one festival yes. in the region where you can literally, literally hear every genre of music created in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. It is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, what role has the festival played in identifying, developing, and exposing new talent? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so one of the objectives of the festival from the very beginning was to have a strong local component. So it was about ensuring that each and every year that we have a strong Dominican input into the festival. So whilst we attract the Bernabois and the Kess and the Bachelors of this world, we also wanted to have WCKs and Triple Ks and young singers and young artists performing on the big stage with this big artist. So that is a, that is one of the great things about this festival. So you see young Dominican performers or bands performing on the same stage with international acts that I just mentioned, some of them. That's one element. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we, we, over the last maybe decade or so, they have always been a, what we call a, a side stage that allows emerging talent to perform during the festival. Mm-hmm. So young acts that may not be getting a chance to be on the main stage can in fact perform in the festival village because one of the things about the festival is that it's held in one place and we have a, we have a large festival village. Again, it amplifies and, and, and make important the whole notion of the Creole aspect, the food, the drink, the fashion, the colors, the vibes. And so they perform right there. And, and, and so, and, and in many instances, they can rub shoulders with some of those big artists performing on the, on the main stage. So, so, but I think there, there is room now for that, for the, for the development of that, for to use the festival even much more as an incubator for emerging talent and for young talent. I think that is, that is one of the areas that festivals across the region must pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, creating a marketplace for promoting and exposing our talent. Yeah. A, a similar thing happens in Tobago, the Tobago Jazz Experience, in terms of utilizing Tobago talent as well as Trinidad talent and up and coming talent. Mm-hmm. And in yes. St. Lucia, obviously, yeah. Um, just to bring it yes. back here one last time, um, Dr. Tull, you, we've seen, we've seen the growth of festivals in terms of talent incubators, as you said, and of course, tourism catalysts and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm just wondering in terms of your research, we've seen that the Jamaica Sumfest, and I know, I guess Sumfest, sorry, I know Laura has done some writing on it, the private investor, was the with the investor to kind of re, to, re, to, re, to bring it back up to, yeah. to, to space as it was? Yeah. Um, how do you see festivals as being an investment tool? Yes. For the industry and certainly 
you through an antibiotic experience. All right. Well, that is very important because I believe that is where the future lies, and it links back to the original question that Laura would have asked about mm -hmm. what is the impact of festivals on music. Mm -hmm. um, festivals really are animators in the first instance, and when we say animator, we mean that it, it has a way that it 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 invigorates, it it gives opportunity for creative productivity. Um, and creative productivity is something that is, is very special um, in the sense that, particularly for a context of the Caribbean, where we have a lot of um, resources, cultural resources and assets very unique to us, very indigenous, um, it allows for you to develop a brand that is different. So you have the opportunity through your festival animation to offer an experience like no other, so to speak, that can't necessarily be replicated in another part of the world. Of course it can be replicated because we have many carnivals around the world. But then why are people coming in droves in 2024? Because on the bucket list is to be here in Port of Spain for Trinidad Carnival. They could go Miami, they could go all over. But your festival has that opportunity to drive that kind of what I call creative productivity, and that is one. I think as well, the festival gives the opportunity for widening entrepreneurial um, capacity. Um, it is through the festivals, especially the carnivals, and, and this is something that I feel the other kinds of festivals, particularly the music festivals, um, need to give attention to. Um, you know, the carnival is sexy. You see a lot of young people sexy. involved in the digital economy because of the carnival. I, I think Maybe eight years ago, we would have never thought that someone could have a job making a lot of money and being able to go some of these carnivals and go all these fancy all-inclusives and these big, big costumes. And when you ask them what they do, they say they're a blogger. You would have never even thought that. And what they do is that they link because now they are connected to some of these same corporate entities that the festival itself may have given opportunity to but they can become important conduits the same ways in which the artist manager did donkey years ago because they have the capacity now to link where and connect music um, professionals with the festival, with the corporate entities in some, some very strategic and, and potentially sustainable ways because, of course, everybody is interested in it for their own livelihood. And so it becomes a kind of shared interest. And I think... Thirdly, for me, um, which falls directly in my garden, is that I see the festival always as a, as a lab, you know. It gives really an opportunity for the development of capacities um, in some very interesting ways. I've seen my students um, move on to creating their own projects based on the festivalists that are alive and kicking and real. And, and so, for so, for example... Um, there is a particular project um, that was seen throughout the Cari Festival Village when it was here um, a, a, a called a Folk Horror House. Um, Liana Boyce coming out of Miaro. And this Cari Festa hired her. And this is a particular project that has moved through the region as well. That was a project that was developed in our classroom under the Course Festival project. Yes. And when you look also... <laughs> Well, the most famous one, which I love to brag about, that Island E platform. When, when last did anybody tap on Island E? You bought anything on Island E recently? 
that was a project that came out of the students' grad work in creative design entrepreneurship, which is a, pro a program at our, in our department, the CFA. So the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the festival arena gives the opportunity for real life learning. Well, we have Melissa. Oh, but that perhaps is the most direct example because Mel is doing what she would have learned there with us. And so the point I'm making is, is that learning by doing is very critical. And the festival has this way of giving those opportunities. Um, because you've got to think immediate. You know, there's no test run and dry run. And um, out of that, I would say that it allows for the professional development beyond the classroom, and it helps to strengthen the, the industries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, I guess at the end of the day, what we could say is that the way that festivals are become investment catalysts is that the yeah. promoters have to have data. They have to they provide do. data. They do. They have to be able to, to shape the data and, of course, do economic in, impact assessments yeah, they have to after the events so that they become attractive. Because yeah. festivals do work as an incubator and an incubating space, yeah. both here and in Dominica, with um, Sobas as proven and shown. And there's a potential, I think, for growth of the wider music industry based on Most that. Most certainly, yeah. Definitely. That's it. So, thank you, Dr. Tal. You're most welcome. Thank you, Sobas Esprit. And where am I shouting? <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you, Laura Dorich. I am Nigel Campbell. I'm Laura Dorich. And you've been listening to Music Matters, a Caribbean edition. <laughs> Live podcast. Live and alive. I don't know why they're songing like they're running away yet, though. Hold on. We have room for about two questions. Oh. Keep it simple, oh. sweet to the point. And of course, our panelists keep the. We have two questions. Yeah. So you're going to use the mic so that the audience who's listening in can hear. Thank you. Um, Roger Saloum. I, I don't know if you uh, saw when I introduced myself earlier. Um, talking about data. Yeah. Give, can you give us an example of a festival um, investment opportunity and the return on the investment? Okay, I don't have the data in front of me. My apologies. Um, but you were correct with your assertion earlier that a lot of the data is dated. And um, with our work, we have done ROIs for Trinidad Carnival. I can certainly, through email, send it for you. Um, we have done it for the same Royal Creole Music Festival, and we have also done it for St. Lucia Jazz, Cayman Islands Pirates Week, St. Kitts Music Festival. Um, I suppose what you are, what you are interested or inclined to know is what those dollars look like. And you would find that if a government invests something like, let's say, two million, and it's interesting, most of them don't like to go past that two million. Two seems to be some kind of magic number. You will see an ROI of 35 million, 100 and something million. And the ROI is what was generated. There was a time when Trinidad Carnival generated as much as 300 and something million. And people find these things strange, but it's not. Simply because you, especially in the Trinidad context, which always has fascinated me, People come here for about 10 days. Y'all know the kind of money they spend? It's crazy. 
And, and this is all in their glee. I'm happy. Right? So that, funny enough, I had a meeting before and I was telling a minister that because she was saying about efficiency and, and that they, they are at a loss. And I said, well, the truth is, respectfully, the government was not making money. It really is that it is the carnival ecosystem or the festival ecosystem that is supposed to make yeah, that money. Yeah. And your job is facilitated to plug in that one million or, or two million. But it is substantive. And if you look at the data for New Orleans, the same colleague, you will see it's the same thing. It's, it's huge. Um, if I just would add quickly, one of the challenges that we perhaps have right now is how do we track well in terms of the trickle down, um, the whole notion of multiplier effects and what have you. And where data collection is concerned, there are varying ways to do that. And unfortunately, because of that, you would find that those who really should be driving it would use that as an excuse as to why not to collect data. The data is not going to be clear and true and reliable and all kinds of things. But as with everything, as you know, there are different ways to produce a song, not so. It's, it's the same thing. Um, the point is you have a benchmark that you can use to help you to craft policy. Because that really is the purpose of the data. It's not just to have the numbers on both. It's to craft policy and, of course, to drive strategy. A second question. Hi, good Nigel, day. can I just jump in there quickly? Yes. Guys? Quickly. So I can tell you that Dominica, the reason why Dominica has been able to sustain the WCMF is precisely because of that. That, that data that was, that was, you know, collected almost 20 years ago is still being used in Dominica to justify the investment in Dominica World Credit Festival. It is a ROI of what? It's, Joanne, it's eight or nine. Um, to one dollar, some, some, right. something like that in Dominica's yes. case. Right. Data is king. Let that be the lesson. Mm-hmm. Second question. Hi, Rion Smith here. Dr. Tull, yes, um, thank you for your contribution, first of all. Um, so, without having to do a degree, is there any framework, a document, a, course, a short course that we can do to better <laughs> understand and apply this going forward? Yes and no. Yes, it exists um, in the sense that quite recently we had the opportunity through some funding by the Caribbean Development Bank to launch such a program. And it really was a pilot program with the intention of carrying it forward at the UWI, um, whereby we would make it an accredited um, program. And it was focused specifically on how you would go about measuring and evaluating um, your your festival, and not just carnival, any festival. Um, the, the, the no part of that is, is that this is a process and it takes time. Um, as with everything, polit- knowledge is also politics. So, you know, we have a kind of, it's not a peck in order, but we have some other things to see about. And, and so we will get there. Good news, I like to be a bearer of good news. It is possible if you caucus a sector, a subsector, that we would certainly offer it because we do have a framework. The courses are, have been written. We know what we're doing in essence and we have found ways to change it into curriculum that is short, incisive, professional, that responds to the needs, of course, to the sectors that you, you can take it and run. Um, so there is also that opportunity if persons are interested. We could most certainly do it. Um, really quickly, just if possible, could you create like an ebook on this? An ebook. 
Well, we would certainly do that. That actually is within the planning in terms of the curriculum because remember now, data is currency, right? You don't give people your ATM pin, do you? So it is also that it is best that it is ensconced in whatever it is that the university is offering. However, as I said, if it is that person, so for example, I have an interest, which Lauren knows, that I would like to offer that, have that done amongst media workers. It really pains me to read a review of a festival and I see things like good and great and spectacular and well, if they catch me or somebody else, it's a, a whole three paragraphs based on what I said. And the truth is, it does not have to be like that. If they, if they are exposed to the training, it gives them the opportunity to, of course, present that in a way that they see best. And when they, they go into the events, like my students always say, Dr. Teller, never ever look at a fet the same way again. It gives you that opportunity now to see it in a different way. So again, if subsectors are interested, 15 people, 20 people, it's something that can be done. And we don't hide information, you know. So you're trained, you would get your, your information, your slides or what have you. And, of course, you can use that then to measure within your own business or sector. Thank you very much to this lovely panel. So there's Esprit from Dominica, Dr. Joanne Tull, Nigel Campbell, and Laura Dowrich. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Music Matters, the Caribbean edition. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Music Matters Caribbean. And if you want to listen to our previous podcasts and keep up with our new material, check out the website podcast.iradio.tt or listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Radio Public, and more of your favorite podcast platforms.